I was uh, growing up in the 60s, the idea that you could judge and be judged by what you ate never entered my head. Or that 60 years on, there'd be a whole TV industry of foodie programs and competitions like MasterChef and Bake Off and all these ones. And I think I can just recall back in the 60s, was it Graham Kerr on our fuzzy and fuzzy white sort of black and white TV sort of jumping around, you know, whether he was the first TV chef. Uh, I got to know Des Britton a little uh, while I was at Wellington Cathedral and, um, and the amazing way in which he had combined his chefing within Wellington City with his faith. And he actually um, went on to be the city missioner and led the city mission to be so much more part of, of the Wellington community and, in fact, for the Wellington community to, uh, to show more concern and really own uh, that part of its mission within the city. When I uh, grew up in the 60s, possibly the same view, we all seemed to eat meals of meat and three veg, and one of which was usually wilted cabbage, but not as they put it on the menu these days, uh, or silver beet with or out, without slugs, or heaven forbid in winter, swede. And uh, we hardly ever ate out or had takeaways. And if we did, there was actually very little to choose from. Um, fish and chips, perhaps a ham steak, or that very exotic-sounding Wiener schnitzel. Um, and chicken, I recall, was a treat for a birthday party, along with pavlova. And, of course, times have well changed. You can be vegetarian, vegan, pescatarian, uh, into fish, politarian, which means you'll eat chicken, flexitarian, which I think just means actually you eat anything you like, um, or a raw foodie, you can choose to uh, buy only foods that are fair trade or organic or that very slippery word natural. Uh, you can commit to buying things that are only locally produced, reducing uh, your food miles and carbon footprints, uh, supporting local farms or as they tend to be called now, agribusinesses. Um, and of course, individual foods seem to go in and out of cycles um, do you recall butter was once that bête noire, you know, cholesterol uh, shunned in favour of margarine until margarine revealed its true colours uh, as a, a secret smuggler of trans fats. And we worry, don't we, about the effects of junk food or sugary drinks or energy drinks uh, on children and, and students. And, of course, we're encouraged to try out the latest superfood. Do you notice they put super on the front of uh, anything? And, you know, the latest thing that promises us youth and energy, if, if not quite everlasting life. But, of course, one danger in all of that is that we lose the sense of food being something we gather around and share together. Um, if everybody has their own preferences, their own likes and their own dislikes and menus, we lose that sense of saying this is something we share together in a way that unites us and puts us on the same footing. I saw a cartoon the other day about the feeding of the 5,000 where they're saying to Jesus, no, no, no I want gluten-free or I want tartar sauce or <laughs> you, can, you can just imagine. And we can take the moral high ground a bit on the use of plastics or packaging or, or what food companies and multinationals we, we might support or won't support. But sometimes we can end up excluding those who can't afford to make those food choices that we might be able to. So good on New World for the, that family-to-family -family food bag uh, program at the present, and there's a bit more about that um, in the pew sheet. 
mind you, I tried to do it the other night and it, it, and it insisted on trying to deliver it to my place. And I said, no, 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 that's not what I want to do. So sometimes these, even these systems break down. But Peter, in our reading from the book of Acts, he's facing some challenges early on in the life of the infant church, and they're all about food. And they're all about, as he is accused, you are sharing table fellowship with Gentiles, and that is not on because they don't follow the Jewish kosher food laws. And of course, if we went back centuries and centuries and centuries, those dietary laws and restrictions were originally given so the Jewish people could keep healthy lifestyles in the Middle East and desert and in the wilderness cultures of which they were a part. But of course, now over the centuries, these had evolved into markers, I guess, uh, taboos or uh, different ways of saying uh, Jews could live in their particular cultures, but they could live in another culture, as was often the case, but not accidentally eat food that, for example, had been offered in sacrifice to pagan gods. So there was plenty of good reasoning uh, behind those laws. Uh, but now Peter is called, um, hauled over the coals, if you like, and called on to defend himself in front of the Jerusalem church. And he goes on to tell them this amazing story uh, that's already the rumor has come back to them of being in Joppa just to the west. It's near Tel Aviv these days. And in prayer, when he sees this vision of this huge tablecloth that comes down filled with all these animals, reptiles and birds, and God saying to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And I guess for us, it's a bit like, you know, if we're a vegan being presented with a, a juicy steak or a barbecue to work through, or us perhaps, you know, bravely going over to the Wild Foods Festival in Hokitika and being offered a plate of hoo-hoo grubs and saying, well, get on with it then. And we can say, well, you know, not my thing. And this is the same for Peter. And of course, I love the way with Peter, everything has to happen three times. And, you know, um, that's great. It takes him three times to get it, and we would probably be the same. And another three, three Gentile men arrive and ask Peter to accompany them to meet with their boss, who's a Roman centurion called Cornelius, but he's based at the garrison in Caesarea on the coast. And you can still go and see the ruins there. Now, Cornelius is what was called a God-fearer. He was devout. He was respectful of the Jews. But still, that must have put the wind up, Peter, a bit. You know, he's a Roman centurion who could, you know, very easily put him into prison or worse. But then it dawns on Peter that this strange vision was not so much about animals, but actually about people. The Spirit told me not to make a distinction between them and us. And so against all everything that he's ever learnt, he goes off to meet this Cornelius. Cornelius says to him, God's told me you're on the way with a message of salvation for me and my house. Now, what an, what an opening that is, what an entry point. And Peter responds and he brings the good news of Jesus, his death, his resurrection, the hope of new life. Peter assures them, God shows no partiality. I mean, what a message for the world of his time. What a message for our world. God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears God and does what is right is acceptable to God. 
And then yet again, the spirit is ahead of the game. Peter's still in the middle of his sermon. He's only on page three. Uh, when the Holy Spirit falls upon all who are present and Peter realizes God is ahead of the game already. Who am I, he says, that I could hinder God when these people received the Holy Spirit just as we did and just like us have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so these new Christians are immediately baptized. Peter stays with them for a few days, shares table fellowship with them, just as Jesus did with those uh, who wouldn't ordinarily be at the table. So as Pete, you can hear, as Peter tells the story to the church at Jerusalem, there's first of all just shocked silence. And then finally they get it. And I love the way it's described then. God has given even, even to the Gentiles, even to the Gentiles, the repentance that leads to life. And that was a huge step in the spread of the gospel from Jews to Gentiles. And that's when we start seeing the ripples going out, uh, right out. The gospel would now go out all around the Roman Empire. And who knows, maybe Cornelius the Roman centurion was one of those who took the gospel back to Rome. Because when Paul uh, says, I'm on my way to Rome, he says there are Christians there already. So maybe Cornelius was part of that journey. Now, we staff were talking the other day about having perhaps a combined service on St. Barnabas Day in June. And we could easily say, it's just too hard, Basker. Everyone thinks it's a good idea till we actually do it. And then people say they don't like the music or the children and babies are noisy or someone sits in my seat. It's like Goldilocks on the three bears, isn't it? <laughs> and anyway, everybody comes at the wrong time. So it's actually far easier just to stay home. And we can think, well, why bother them? But I imagine, actually, it wasn't that comfortable in those services of the early church when Jews and Gentiles had different ways of doing things different traditions, different cultures and languages. Um, there had to be an enormous give and take and patience and giving up, it's all about me and my likes and choices for the sake of the larger body of Christ. And yes, of course, it's not easy, but from time to time, and not that often, we do have combined services here and we all step out of our comfort zone. And it's not easy, but it's good for us, actually. And we come together as the body of Christ, united around God's word and around God's table, to which all are invited, male and female, Jew and Gentile, slave or free, whatever modern binary, whatever equivalents we want to set up, Jesus breaks them down every time. Today's gospel, as we heard, we know so well, that new commandment, you love one another as I have loved you. But we need to remember the context. Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. Night before his death, he's just washed their feet in an act of humble service. He's just shared with them a last supper, a meal, which he will call them to repeat in remembrance of him, our Holy Communion service. And Judas, whose feet Jesus has washed, who shared that last meal with Jesus, has just gone out to betray him. That's actually how that begins, when he had gone out. It's actually talking about Judas. Judas has gone out. And then Jesus makes this amazing statement. 
it's actually not a new commandment. I mean, as we heard it last week, the Hebrew scriptures have always called God's people to love God and love their neighbor as themselves. But what is different is the way Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you, as I have loved you, as I have washed your feet, as I am going out now to die for you. As he says, I am going to love you to the uttermost and love you to the end. That's the example of love to which we are called. That is what makes it new. And of course, we think, I can never reach that standard. I've got enough trouble loving my family and my friends, let alone those I don't know, those different to myself, let alone loving people to the extent of being willing to die for them, to give myself up for them. But Jesus knows our human frailty, and, and, and I love, he goes on in John chapter 14 to 16, and we'll actually be reading from those chapters in the weeks now heading up to Pentecost, we start to hear of his promise that when he's returned to the Father, he will send his spirit, his own spirit, to dwell within us, the very life of God to be in us, to strengthen us, and to help us to bring love to others and love to God's world. So it's not all about us, but nor is it all up to us. It's the spirit's work within us. So as we're in these final weeks now between Easter and Pentecost, we pray for the coming of God's Spirit afresh. And meanwhile, week by week, we gather around Christ's table and we come hungry and thirsty to feed on Christ, to receive that food for the journey of discipleship, spiritual food that will nourish our heart and souls and bodies, build us up as God's community, and then enable us to go out into God's so needy world. May it be so for us here, to God's glory. Amen.